0: everyone and welcome to another episode of god is not a theory with ken fish if you're tuning in right now and watching this i am in my car and uh it's the uh it's it's where we find ourselves today but ken you aren't in your car uh you're back in your home studio i see and uh and you're joining us today from california
1: that's right sunny california although sunny and windy and everybody's complaining about how cold it is even though it's like I don't know, 50 degrees or 55 degrees.
0: Wow, that's nice. I know. All of us that aren't on on the South California uh, side, we're all jealous, uh, <laughs> for sure. So uh, enjoy that. Well, hey, I, I'm excited to jump in uh, today. I know that you and I have been talking about uh, a subject that e- even our listeners and viewers have, have wrote in about, and that's the dynamics, the subject of the radical middle. And uh, I'm looking forward to, to that discussion uh, yesterday. Uh, we're both uh, vineyard uh, background and uh, radical metal was, uh, was certainly something that uh, is, is driven into our DNA. So I think there's a, a lot of fruitful discussion to be had about that. So what was the, you came up with this one, sometimes I'll come up with a topic, sometimes you'll come up with a topic. Uh, what was the uh, impetus of this topic for today?
1: Uh, somebody r- wrote to me recently and said, I really wish you would talk about the radical middle. And uh, I thought, you know, that, that is, that's vineyard lore. And I've had a lot of people, gosh, many people tell me, we want to know more about vineyard lore from, you know, the early years when you were involved. Um, and I thought, yeah, we could talk about that. Why not? So um, here we are.
0: Here we are indeed.
1: Um,
0: all right, well, great. I, I know a little bit about uh, the radical middle, but for all of those that are listening uh, right now, can you give us a, a definition of what you're meaning by radical middle?
1: Well, let's let's go back to first things. Um, I heard John Wimber use this term a couple of times. But to be honest, I don't, I don't remember it being a big part of his lexicon. Um, Certainly, he knew what it was, and as I say, he used it a few times. John was himself trained as a sociologist. He'd gotten a degree from Azusa Pacific University, although maybe maybe in his time, it was still Azusa Pacific College, uh, which I guess at this moment really doesn't matter to us. Um, but anyway, so it's in Azusa, California, a little bit to the east of Pasadena, and he was trained as a sociologist. This is really what got him interested in things like how do churches grow, why do they grow, what are the particulars that go with um, churches and their uh, their genesis, their their rise, their fall, all of that. And he he liked to look at things from a sociological perspective. And this ultimately led him into things with Pete Wagner and the Fuller. Uh, Church Growth Institute was what it was known as, and uh, Pete was leading that at the time from Fuller Seminary. So uh, John became interested in kind of redefining the terms under which the Holy Spirit might move, and I really think this was driven by his own background in the Quaker denomination. He'd been saved into the Quakers, which you don't these days, you hardly ever hear of anybody getting saved into a Quaker church, because so much of Quaker theology is, I would say, somehow not aligned with what we think of as traditional orthodoxy. Um, Or maybe I should say, maybe I should say more accurately, Quaker practice. You know, whenever we talk about Christianity, we need to talk about doctrine and practice. And when things are correct, or, you know, true to the If they're, you know, when a carpenter builds something, he uses a square to make sure it is square. Um, So we would say orthodox for proper doctrine and orthoprax for proper practice. And within the Quaker group, I think there's been a drift somewhat theologically, thus not all that they use as doctrine would be considered traditional Christian orthodoxy. And within the praxis realm, there's there's also some things that are a little bit unusual. But my, di- my point today is not to talk about the Quakers. Um, I'm not particularly an expert on them. I know something about them. But anyway, John had come out of the Quaker denomination and he lived in Yorba Linda. Yorba Linda, California, traditionally was a Quaker bastion. And there are still today a couple of very well-known Quaker churches within your Belinda itself. Um, they're generally known as Society of Friends, or in shorthand, the Friends Church, if you if you ever look one up. So one is uh, one is the Rose Drive Friends Church, and the other one was the your Belinda Friends Church. And they're kind of on opposite sides of town, but it's not a very big town. So anyway, both of these were pretty good sized institutions in their day. And, and I would say, even to this day, with all of the growth, all of the secularization of America, all of the things that have changed within Quakerism, um, there still is something about your Belinda when you go there, that little town just uh, kind of on the north side of Orange County, almost all the way to the Riverside County line. There's just something about it. It just feels a little bit different. There's a kind of, I don't know, folksy down home thing about it. And I guess you could say there's still a touch of God on the town. It was always known for being conservative because of its theological leanings. Um, it was always known for being a thrifty, tidy community. Uh, people tended to grow citrus and avocados out there. Uh, now and then you'd see a cow, but there weren't huge herds of cattle. And uh, a lot of the local kids would go hunting in, the, in what, they, what was the south end of the Chino Hills which is just north of Yorba Linda, um, because in those days, people weren't as riled up about firearms. And so that was kind of Yorba Linda. John got saved into the Friends Church there, and he rose uh, through the ranks to become a first an assistant pastor and ultimately um, a senior pastor. And it was from there that Pete Wagner recruited him to the Fuller Church Growth Institute because uh, generally, Friends churches aren't that evangelistic. They're not particularly evangelical. They're more about the inner light or the inner voice. And if you go back and look at the journals of George Fox, who was the founder of the uh, of the Society of Friends or or the Quaker Church, uh, this was a really important part of their theology: was that uh, that you would hear the interior voice of God. And a lot of what went on in Quaker meetings, original Quaker meetings from years ago, um, a lot of what went on was people would gather and they would just wait on God. And then as people thought they had something from the Lord, today we might call it a word of prophecy, uh, but it might not even be all that they called a prophecy. It might be something like a short teaching. It might be a tongue. This, This very much was relying on what Paul says when he says when you come together each one has a tongue and interpretation maybe a hymn or a psalm it was that sort of a thing and that was the original setup of the society of friends now remember fox lived a couple of centuries ago so we're not we're not talking modern quaker modern quaker churches tend to look like regular churches do they tend to have much the same flow and structure to their services um, but anyway, John had been saved into one of these. He was led to the Lord by a welder named Gunnar Payne. I don't think anybody knows what became of Gunnar. Um, he would be long dead now. But anyway, he had led John to the Lord, and it was in a Bible study. Again, this is not what you most commonly think of when you think of Quaker churches. But these Quaker churches in your Linda functioned in this way. So this brings us to, that's background for the radical middle. So John had a strong working theology of the Holy Spirit. And I've talked with Carol, his um, now remarried widow, uh, a number of times about this. And, um, you know, Carol always has said to me pretty reliably, she's never met anybody who could hear the voice of God like John. And I guess it's because he was raised in that environment. You know, what you what you grow up around is what you become familiar with and comfortable with. Right. So a big part of the Quaker tradition was to hear the, the voice of God, and that's what John did. And this was part of that leading that, you know, he would, he would speak of, the Lord told me or the Lord spoke to me. Well, this is not normal evangelical language. I mean, in the normal mainstream evangelical church, and you can pick your denomination, but think of almost any kind of mainstream branch of Protestantism, and we can kind of go up and down the line. We can talk about the Nazarenes, the Baptists, the Presbyterians, the Methodists, the Episcopalians, Congregationalists. I mean, you could name some others, but up and down the line. Lutheran, don't mean to forget the Lutherans. Um, this idea of God spoke to me or actually sitting and waiting on the voice of God or inquiring of the Lord, this, was, this is not something that is routinely emphasized. You'll find a church here and there that does it. But John was raised in this tradition. And ultimately, I think it's safe to say he didn't know any dif- different. He didn't know any better. He just, he just always w- heard the Lord. And I remember when I first met him and when I was working for him, he would often say, the Lord spoke to me, this is what we're supposed to do, blah, 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 blah. And you'd be like, where did that come from? But I watched him over years and he was very rarely wrong. Very, very rarely wrong. Very rarely wrong. Now and then I saw it, but I mean, it was exceptional when it it happened. And in fact, you know, it's funny that this is even coming up today. Um, Last night, my wife and I went to dinner and uh, we were sitting there eating And we were talking about um, when we had had uh, a meeting with John in 1995, and she said to me, that was the meeting in which John prophesied we would have three children. And at the time, we only had one, and um, Beth became pregnant with the second kind of in that time frame. I don't remember. I could probably walk it back from Anastasia's birthday. But Anyway, she became pregnant in that time frame, so we only had one, and he said we'd have three children, and as it happened, there's a nine-year gap between Anastasia and Carissa, and so, you know, I would say this was rather exceptional that he, but this is an example, just one single personal, simple, not particularly overwhelming example of John hearing the voice of God. Yeah, you guys are going to have three kids, and so, anyway, I'd forgotten, about but Beth remembered it.
0: So, so just even going into that, um, so would you say that he would do that? You're saying he, he would come and, and, and know what to do. And so is that how he would lead primarily is that he would wait on the Lord on how to how to make his next steps on, uh, you know, I don't know, sermon series or because, uh, you know, at the time, I suppose it was a church. Uh, what kind of conference to do, who to hire, um, all of that stuff. Is that what you're implying?
1: That's exactly it. And in fact, I remember when I worked with him from time to time, he'd say, check on these people. And he'd give me some names, you know, one, two, three, ten, 10, whatever. Uh, and one day I said, John, why am I checking on these people? He goes, well, oh, the Lord spoke to me. Something's going on with them. And, you know, I need to follow up on them. And I was like, oh, that's how you pastor. That's why you're not exhausted all the time running around, you know, to every single person in the church. You listen to who God says needs attention, and then you go pay attention to them. Wow. So this was very much a part of John's life. I mean, maybe sometime I'll have Carol come on the podcast and she can elaborate more on this. Um, she could give many perspectives that I wouldn't be able to give. But these are just some things that I remember of all that. So <clears throat> John always had this sense of the voice of God. And it was really the voice of God that led him ultimately into the healing ministry. And that's where the vineyard first really started to make its mark because John started praying for the sick and people were upset about this because in especially in the 1970s, evangelicals don't do such things. Maybe the Pentecostals do, but the evangelicals don't. And so the idea that we're gonna pray for the sick and look for them to get healed. And as John famously reported of himself, he prayed for people for a year before anybody got healed. And, you know, people were upset in the church that he was doing it. And they were mocking because people weren't getting healed. And as they started praying for the sick, uh, many times you would catch the diseases they had, thinking specifically of colds and flus. Um, so it wasn't it wasn't a stunning success to begin with. And then one day John had this, uh, this guy call and he was sick, couldn't go to work. And he called and said, Pastor John, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be fired if I don't go to church. You've gotta you've gotta come pray for me. And so John drove over there and he prayed for him and the guy got healed. And it was really the first breakthrough healing. And it wasn't a particularly you know what we would think it was a high power healing. I mean, it wasn't the blind or the deaf. It was just a guy with a with a cold or a flu that was gonna keep him out of work. But he would have lost his job. He had a wife and kids and he needed his job. So John walks outside. And as he walks outside, he has a vision. And, you know, this is one of the ways that the voice speaks. He's had a vision and he saw drops of honey falling out of heaven. And they were landing on people and they were trying to get it off of them. But of course, being honey, it was sticky and they didn't like it. And John looked at it and the Lord said, John, this is my mercy. And he said, there are many people who don't want it. Never, ever take my mercy for granted. And so that man got healed not because of works, not because he named it and claimed it or not because he decreed and declared it. He got healed because of the mercy of God that the Lord wanted to have compassion on his wife and his children and especially on him with the sickness in his body. And so that was really how the vineyard's healing ministry started and it, and it began to grow. Uh, there were several people that were involved in that early on. And ultimately the entire congregation became involved in it because John started teaching out of the gospel of Matthew with the objective of teaching people about the ways that Jesus healed. And so, so le-
0: yeah. let me, let me ask a, a clarifying question. Um, Cause I, I know I've heard this a lot. You, you juxtapose the two uh, evangelical and Pentecostal and how, um, how praying for people to be healed wasn't an evangelical thing, maybe a Pentecostal thing. Can you kind of just really quickly explain the difference in those two, and, and like what's the fundamental uh, core difference?
1: Yeah, I was actually going to go there, so this is a this is a good ask. Um, so the evangelical tradition tends to hold that, you know, when you're born again, you get the Holy Spirit and what you get of him is what you get, and essentially that's all there is to it. Um, The Pentecostal tradition coming out of Azusa Street, and there are several streams of Pentecostalism, but the most well-known, now almost mainstream Pentecostal denomination in the country is the Assemblies of God. But there are some others, um, Church of God, in Christ, uh, I mean, there are, we could sit here and name denominations. I'm not meaning to exclude anyone. I'm just saying that the Pentecostals, the Pentecostals tended to be probably lower socioeconomic class, especially in the early 20th century. I don't know if that's as true today, but in the early 20th century, this was very much the case. Um, and they had a theology of what was called the second blessing. And the theology of the second blessing holds that you get some part of the Holy Spirit upon conversion, but, but they don't really define, I don't know if you can define how much. But the theology of the second blessing predominantly says that after conversion, which is your first blessing, because you get to go to heaven, there is a second blessing to be obtained from the Lord in which you are baptized in the Holy Spirit. And generally, Pentecostalism is going to say that the, pre, that the premier sign of being baptized in the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues. And so Pentecostal denominations everywhere, you know, one of the big things is, okay, you know, Billy Joe got hands laid on him last night, and he spoke in tongues. He got the blessing. He got, he got the baptism. You hear this kind of language, you know, pretty reliably. And so John was an evangelical, and he didn't really have that theology of the second blessing, he believed that when you're converted, as it says in both First Corinthians one and Ephesians one, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit as a down payment against the day of redemption, or the day of fulfillment, or the final judgment, whatever, however you want to say it. But um, so this this really becomes your your inheritance in the Holy Spirit, and this is the first major hallmark of the radical middle, is this idea that you get the Holy Spirit at conversion, not Sometime later, and this idea of a second blessing was not was not really part of John's original lexicon. Now it's interesting. Many, many, many people spoke in tongues under John's ministry all over the world, and it was because he was so good at threading the needle. He understood the evangelical mindset, and he knew that this thing of you know, you don't really have the Holy Spirit unless you speak in tongues, was deeply, deeply offensive to evangelicals. And it literally pushed them away from Pentecostalism. And so the way John learned to articulate this is he would say, um, okay, everybody who wants to speak in tongues, come up. And so there'd be an altar call. And he'd say, you received the Holy Spirit at conversion, now we're going to release the fullness of the Holy Spirit. It's like, uh, you know, breaking open the box, or, you know, taking the bands off the barrel, what's inside is going to come out, and boom, people would speak in tongues, and so John was theologizing it, so his orthodoxy was not in question from the standpoint of an evangelical listener, but his orth- but his praxis, or you could say his orthoprax, you know, he's, he's, Behaving in an in an, his behavior looks like an event like a Pentecostals behavior. So from an orthoprax standpoint, he looks Pentecostal. Where is he? Well, he's between evangelicalism and Pentecostalism. And so he's in the middle, and thus the term the radical middle. But as I said, he's he's praying for the sick. Well, evangelicals, I mean, they'll pray for the sick, but it's more like we're going to have everybody say a prayer for, you know, Sister Martha, who's home in bed sick, that, that she would be healed and be at church next week, you know, that kind of thing. There was very little understanding within evangelicalism that you might actually lay hands on somebody with an expectation that healing would come to them. And John was practicing the ministry of laying on of hands. Again, doctrinally he was very close to an evangelical or right on top of an evangelical theology but from a praxis standpoint he looked like an orthoprax pentecostal and so people looked and they're like well is he evangelical or is he pentecostal this confuses us and john would say i am an evangelical over and over again he would say that and yet he knew experientially that there were many infillings of the holy spirit and even to this day, people who are familiar with John's teachings will tend to use this same sort of language. And one of the most prominent is Randy Clark, who, you know, he'll say we're going to have impartation, uh, but you know, we're just going to release what's in you, or, or, or language to that effect. Randy changes the way he says it from time to time. But but when we when we look at that, we see in John, okay, now we've got a guy who's getting people speaking in tongues, but he's evangelical in his theology. We've got a people who's praying for the sick, but he's evangelical in his theology. Later on, he started uh, praying for people to be delivered of evil spirits. Well, this is absolutely out out of the realm from an evangelical theological perspective and with it from a praxis standpoint. But demons started manifesting. So John started driving them out and teaching people to drive them out. Well, that was a radical thing, too. But it was in this middle ground between evangelicalism and Pentecostalism. So this is yet another mark of the radical middle.
0: And so he would he in his praxis. this is sort of a fine point, but in his in his in his praxis, would when he's play, praying for the release of the Holy Spirit, what they've already received, um, in his view, was the initial evidence of the release of that uh, tongues?
1: He was more nuanced than that, or you could say more sophisticated. You can say it the way you want. Um, People would ask him that question, so is the initial evidence tongues, because this would be a red flag to a typical evangelical. And John would say, well, the Holy Spirit has many gifts, why wouldn't you want all of them? And so his point was, of course, tongues is available to you if you want to speak in tongues. Yeah, right, right. And I remember one time, I don't remember where we were, but this man came up to him and he'd been seeking, and he, this man used the language of baptism in the Holy Spirit, which again is not preferred language in evangelical circles. But this man came up and he said, I've been seeking the baptism. And now I can't remember how long it had been, but it was a long time. Maybe it was 24 years But I mean, it could have been longer, but I mean, it was long enough that it was. And this guy said he'd been earnestly seeking the Lord for the baptism in the spirit. And he wanted the evidence of speaking in tongues. And John literally slapped him across the face just like that. Now, he didn't do it overly hard, but he did slap him and he said, speak in tongues. And the guy blah, 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 starts speaking in tongues, and John, I'll say it, twenty-four years. John, John walks away shaking his head. Twenty-four years seeking the baptism. How ridiculous! Well, you know, John sometimes could be a little bit, you know, over the top, crazy, wild, whatever. But, but I mean, this is kind of emblematic of the of the very thing that we're describing. That, you know, John shook his head. I think partially because. He's thinking this should not have taken 24 years, but it's also emblematic because John, you know, as an evangelical in his theology is like, what are you even talking about seeking the baptism? You have the Holy spirit. So just open your mouth and God will fill it, you know, open your wide mouth, and I will fill it, Psalm 34, and boom, there you go, you should, you should be able to speak in tongues, and so he used to say everybody should be able to speak in tongues, so if you need a little help, come on up, we're going to pray for the Lord to release these gifts in you, and a further thing to John's theology that was very, very unusual, and this didn't fit evangelical theology or Pentecostal theology, is John believed that everybody could operate in all of the gifts of the Spirit, all of them, and of course, for most people, this primarily means the gifts of the spirit that we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 14. And so we've got, they're not in this order, but we've got, uh, we've got tongues, interpretation of tongues and prophecy. And those are generally kind of the, the gifts of speech. And then we've got word of knowledge, word of wisdom, discerning of spirits. And these are the gifts of discernment or perception. John sometimes called them the eyes of God and and then we have three last ones which are uh, which are the gifts of i can't remember what they are right now what are they what are the last three gifts i'm not thinking of uh, i was i was trying to think of that too uh, oh here we go faith miracles and healing miracles yeah, yeah. faith miracles and healing and so <laughs> mental block so and john called these the hand of god or the, these are sometimes called the power gifts well again evangelicals don't really at least in that period, there's been some change in evangelicalism, and now these things are a lot less controversial, particularly the gift of healing. John is probably singularly responsible for that shift, especially with respect to the gift of healing. Um, But faith, miracles, and healing uh, would be the power gifts. And so from an evangelical perspective, even though in those years most evangelicals would not have subscribed to the idea of the ongoing uh, existence of all these gifts if they were if they were going to have any theology at all they would say everybody is given a gift and the gift that you get is the gift that you have and that's all there is so don't expect any differently and right. and so that was kind of standard evangelical fare. and but you know from an evangelical perspective this tended to be gifts like teaching or administration things like that nobody was really taking gifts like you know miracles or tongues seriously then so they
0: most of the time they would use the ephesians the ephesians four gifts as the gifts of the spirit and in fact those are the gifts of jesus
1: that's right uh, yeah gotcha okay and a lot of that was influenced by the theology of john calvin because calvinism has had an enormous impact on evangelical theology across the board all right on the pentecostal side they believed in the ongoing existence of the gifts but they tended to believe that whatever gift you had was the gift you had And so they weren't going to question things like miracles or the miraculous faith or uh, gifts like word of knowledge or prophecy. That was was all accepted within Pentecostalism. But again, whatever you had was what you had, and you shouldn't really expect to get any more. And John said, no, no, no. You can operate in any of the gifts across the spectrum, and uh, it's as the Spirit wills and distributes those gifts that you function in these things. Well, again, this is a radical perspective. And in this case, it's neither Pentecostal nor evangelical, or as we might say, neither fish nor fowl. So this was another dimension of the radical middle. And, you know, people didn't know what to do with that, except they watched John and others that were associated with him function in all the gifts. And they went, well, uh, what they're doing seems to track to what they're teaching. All right. Um, I'd like the gift of healing or I'd like the gift of miracles. I I always thought I was just a, you know, like a Sunday school teacher or something, but bring it on. And so many, many people started to enter into these things. And again, the thing that most particularly became associated with the vineyard was healing. And so this was a thing, uh, from the founding of the vineyard church in Yorba Linda, it was originally a Calvary Chapel, but it quickly became a vineyard. Um, and that was 19, uh, let me make sure I got my years right, 1977. Uh, from there up until the coming of the Kansas City Prophets in 1989, for 12 years, when you thought about spiritual gifts with vineyard, mostly you were thinking about healing. That now and then people would get tongues and Nobody got too excited about it, but, but there had been a time, John told this story too, when he had himself been filled with the Holy Spirit, and Carol, his wife, told him that he couldn't speak in tongues because that was of the devil. And that was because most evangelical theology in that time said tongues is of the devil. Well, you don't want to be of the devil, so you don't speak in tongues if you're an evangelical. So this is how that one unfolded. So you can see these many different ways in which we're defining a middle ground that made people by turns intrigued, excited, and very uncomfortable. Just depended on who they were in the, and where they were in the process.
0: Right, right. And I, I've heard uh, it said, you know, in line of the, the gifts and what, he, what his view on them were is that they were situational, not occupational. And, That's correct. Um, in other words, you know, maybe you have a strength in healing, but everyone can can everyone can play everyone gets to to be a part of it right that's exactly Um, right yeah so um i think that's great and i think it's it's it seems to be that we're seeing through this conversation that this radical middle has separated the thought from evangelical and from pentecostal and it's become what i i think we would now term kingdom
1: theology Well, kingdom theology is slightly different. It's related, but it's not not quite the same. Because kingdom theology is all about the teaching of the kingdom of God, which in John's time, uh, George Eldon Ladd had done some writing about the kingdom of God. And so, you know, this was kind of standard fare at Fuller Seminary, and some evangelical seminaries were talking about it. But for the most part, most evangelicals weren't too keen on kingdom of God teaching. And uh, the Pentecostals weren't using this language. And so the kingdom of God was almost like a forgotten concept, even though it's right in the center of everything Jesus taught. And so John started teaching on the kingdom of God, and he did it using the gospel of Matthew and later the other gospels. But Matthew was really where he, he got it going. And uh The the teaching on the kingdom of God fueled the teaching on healing because Jesus healed everywhere he went as a sign of the kingdom, and so John came up with the idea, um, a tagline that I still use, proclamation and demonstration. Jesus proclaimed the kingdom, but he demonstrated the kingdom through healing, And, and John would say Jesus was a word worker. What he taught, he did. What he did, he taught. So that was another John Wimberism. And then we get uh, the idea that we have uh, not only proclamation and demonstration, but sometimes we demonstrate and then we proclaim. And so um, Paul Cain famously made this uh, understanding quite popular because he, he used to say from the book of Acts, Jesus began to do and to teach. And so, you know, the idea was sometimes we just heal people and then we tell them the kingdom has arrived. And so the idea of the kingdom was this notion that the kingdom was dynamic and inbreaking; it could occur anytime, anywhere, and that we are to bring the kingdom as we go about doing our normal daily life. And in bringing the kingdom, we would um, introduce people to uh, the dynamic. And the word dynamic is important because it's active. It's it's, uh, it's kinetic, maybe is a word we might use in lieu of dynamic. It's not static. It's not just we proclaim the kingdom. Yes, there is a kingdom, but rather the kingdom is breaking in. The kingdom is active. And one of, the, one of the key points in all that is the understanding that the kingdom comes by the agency, the current work of the Holy Spirit, who gives us the tools we need to be kingdom bringers. Those tools are known as the gifts of the Spirit. So they're related concepts, but they're not quite the same.
0: Right, I got gotcha. you. And, and so we f- we find this journey of the radical metal that was just continually being pulled upon. I assume, uh, as John was defining it, and as as the vineyard was continued to grow, I I would assume that you would want, with the vineyard's influence, both camps would want it to be a part of their camp. And so it would be this this tightrope. Would that be?
1: Uh, yeah. John's initial entree. And the first real open doors that he had to all of this was in evangelicalism. And to a great extent, that was because of the uh, agency of Pete Wagner. Again, Pete was a professor at Fuller Seminary. He had quite a platform there. And uh, so he, when John was working for him at the Fuller Evangelistic Association, John had been there since either 73 or 74, it was in 77 that John said, John, it's time for you to go home and implement what you're uh, what you believe in, what you're teaching, you know, out on the road in these church growth consultations that you're doing. And so he we went home and this church had already started at the time. It had seven people and it was meeting in a living room. But, you know, it, it began to grow as people began to encounter God and experience God. And, uh, you know, presently, it moved to this building and that building and, you know, schools and so forth. And ultimately, it found uh, lodgment in much larger buildings. Um, At one point, the church had met at Canyon High School, which is still there today, uh, 91 Freeway in Southern California at the Imperial Highway off-ramp. And if you go to the south side of the freeway, the high school is just up there on the hill. Uh, So uh Canyon High was a real high point because that's where the holy spirit fell in such power when Lonnie Frisbee ministered. Um prior to that the church was again engaging in healing and it was a, it was a good solid church and you know people loved each other and all that but it didn't have the kind of fame and visibility that it had until uh after the Lonnie thing. But after Lonnie came John started taking this on the road and so there was a trip to England and then there was a trip to South Africa. And England became very influenced by John because of the influence of an, of an Anglican bishop named David Pitches. And there was another one named David Watson, the, both of them. And uh, so uh, Pitches was a bishop in York, England, which is the second most important Anglican uh, diocese in the nation. The most important is the Archbishop of Canterbury's diocese known as canterbury and it's in southern england so uh john went up to york and there were amazing things that went on there and then there were some other visits to other churches on that trip saint andrews charleywood and it was really out of all that that holy trinity brompton got uh, its start anybody who's aware of british renewal christianity knows of nicky gumbel the alpha course all of that came out of those visits and then later Mm -hmm. a year later john went to South Africa. And the the enduring influence of of John on the South African churches remains to this very day. Um, Brian Blount, who we've had on this show before, has just, I think, two or three days ago now, returned from um, yet another trip to South Africa. He goes there quite often and generally goes for extended trips. I think he was there 24 days this time. And so the spirit of God continues to move among these churches in South Africa. And these were the first two international trips. Well, this really blew the lid off of things and people all over the world were buzzing about what the vineyard was doing. And so back to your question, evangelicals wanted John to come. They wanted, they wanted to experience God in this way. And if it was healing, great. I mean, we got all kinds of sick people in our churches. If we're going to, if we're going to speak in tongues, as long as you don't talk to us about this second blessing thing, why not? Okay. Let's have a try. And so lots and lots and lots of evangelicals got on board, and many people with whom John had had associations because of his time at the Fuller Evangelistic Association. I mean, we're talking hundreds and thousands of pastors uh, invited him to come, and he pretty quickly realized, I can't go to all these churches one-to-one. I need to start holding conferences. And so that's where these big, as they called them, Wimber conferences came from. Um, And the most famous of them all were the MC510 and MC511 conferences. But he had conferences on healing and worship and holiness and many other topics. I was a writer for a lot of that content uh, back in those years. But while the evangelicals were pulling on John, because, you know, they wanted to access all of this stuff, uh, Pentecostals kind of woke up and they're like, hey, this guy's doing stuff that we believe in, but we don't see very much of it. And so the next thing you know, John's getting invitations to Oklahoma and to North Texas, and he's being asked to speak um, to Vincent Sinan, uh, who out at Regent University. Um, he, was, he was invited to Oral Roberts University. So there were all these doors that opened to him among the Pentecostals, and many Pentecostals rediscovered what they believed, but had never experienced. Mm-hmm. And so you had this pull from both the evangelicals and the pentecostals and then the catholics found out about it and the next thing you know john was interacting with catholics well this made a lot of evangelicals just like they didn't have any that this blew their minds because you know for long centuries there was great animosity between evangelicals and mainstream protestants and catholics and it was doctrinal it was left over from the bloodshed of the of the uh reformation timeframe. I mean, it was a mess. Uh, But John just kept doing it. Some of the evangelicals said, you know, we won't work with you anymore. We're not going to have you in anymore. But John said, no, no, I, you know, I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep doing this because God loves the whole church. Here again, this is a radical middle perspective. It's the idea that whether you're a Catholic or a Protestant, as long as you're not a heretic or something, those people exist. But But if you're a genuine believer, whether of a Catholic or a Protestant persuasion, or for that matter, an Orthodox persuasion, and by Orthodox, I don't mean, I'm not now using the term in the way that I did early in this broadcast to refer to sound doctrine, but rather Orthodox as in Eastern Orthodox. So whether you're Coptic or Syrian Orthodox or Russian Orthodox or Greek Orthodox or whatever, there are many other branches. Um, But you you could be any of it. But whatever you are, um, God loves you, and he's coming back for a big bride, and there's a lot of variations on the way people practice their faith. Um, and so John found a way between all that, and so he started to have open doors among all these Catholics. And I can remember him going to Germany, and you know, the Catholic bishops came, and you know, he was in France, and you know, the, the prelates of France came. I remember him going to the University of Steubenville. Um, in Steubenville, Ohio. It's a Catholic university, and um, Father John Bertolucci had a TV show at that time, and he was kind of a cross between a, a priest and a teacher and an evangelist, but lots of Catholics were getting saved through Father John's ministry. So John went out to Steubenville, and we did a big conference in Steubenville. I can't remember now, but maybe it was 1986 from memory. Um, Anyway, so again, this is a radical middle perspective that that John took. And ultimately, as I mentioned, John didn't use the term radical middle all that much. But there was a guy who was a vineyard pastor in Indianapolis. He's now with the Lord. And his name uh, was Bill Jackson. He later in life moved to Southern California and was living out in what we call the Inland Empire and attending the Ontario, California Vineyard. Um, Bill Jackson wrote a book called The Quest for the Radical Middle. And um, I think it's out of print, but you can probably find copies around and it's surely available on Kindle. And so The Quest for the Radical Middle became kind of the Magna Carta of what this was all about. And it was the idea that it was a quest and you could lose it. You could lose the quest. You could get knocked off the rails. You might end up on one side or the other without maintaining that dynamic tension. And John was very good at at, uh, existing with tension. He didn't always have to have closure and resolution to everything. And so Mm -hmm. this idea of the radical middle was, well, what we're doing is radical and we want to be radical for God in all that he has available and all that's in his word, but we're seeking to be in that middle ground between these various camps, because nobody has a corner on the truth. I think that's probably the best way to talk about that idea of the radical middle.
0: That's great. That's great. And so what do you think, what do you see uh, for us, I mean, in this topic and and what people wanted to do, what, what do you think are the takeaways and implications for us today in this i mean has i guess you know the question is we've talked a lot about the past has it stood the test of time um is it um is it something that we should all espouse to i mean you know what i mean like i, I guess in this conversation i mean as our vineyard background we can both you say sure it's great but i guess for those that are listening right now i mean what what would we want them to take away from this
1: well one of the things that we have to remember is it is a quest and as i mentioned a moment ago you can fall off the rails and i think in some ways uh many of the movements that emerged ultimately out of john and out of the vineyard movement and now i'm thinking of you know some of the the more prominent renewal ministries out there um in some way they all look back to john and they give credit to him Um, I mean, I've heard Bill Johnson say, I remember going to a couple of Wimber meetings. I never met him, but I remember sitting there thinking, this man is doing what I believe. God, I want it. And when he prayed that, he started functioning that way. So John never laid hands on Bill Johnson. They never met, but Bill nevertheless got something out of that theology. Um, But Bill ultimately, originally, was an Assembly of God guy, so he was more of the Pentecostal persuasion. So he kind of came back towards the middle somehow, as an inf- under the influence of John. Whereas the Evangelicals got kind of pulled more towards the Pentecostals in their theology and practice, based on their interaction with John. But to maintain this for the long term, this is harder than it might appear. And so there's been a lot of conversation about, you know, how do we get the vineyard back to where it was? Um, I don't personally think there's, there's any going back. I think there's always going forward, but I think the notion of the radical middle is where we want to be. And, you know, two things that really, well, maybe three, that, that really knocked the radical middle idea akimbo and made it difficult to continue pursuing it reliably is in 1989, the the Kansas City prophets sprang on the scene. Now, Bob Jones had been known to Mike Bickle in Kansas City for a long, long time. He'd been part of the church. He'd given Mike many prophetic words had come to pass. And so Bob was an established prophet, but he he was unusual in his behaviors. He was a tree trimmer. Uh, He was large of belly. He often wore these ripped, nasty t-shirts that had food stains on them. He spoke with a very much of a, you know, what we would call a hick accent. Um, Bob was very bright. Don't hear in what I'm saying that I think he was a stupid man. He was not. But he did speak in the mannerisms of a guy who didn't have a lot of education and who'd been raised in the kind of, you know, northern tier of the South. So, Bob was one of them. On the other end of the spectrum, uh, Paul Kane had come along and Paul dressed like a Southern gentleman and carried himself very much that way. So he was a little bit more palatable to the, to the sensibilities of the standard audience. Um, and then we had John Paul Jackson and, and in demeanor anyway, he was uh, probably more like um, Paul Kane. And then there was um, James Gall who in those years, everybody knew him as Jim Gall, but, but in fairness to the way he wants to be called today, we'll call him James Gall. So James was one of those prophets. And there were a number of other ones. I'm not naming all of them, but, but I think these four were probably the top four. Bob Hartley was not yet really recognized fully as a prophet yet. And he was, um, he was related to Mike by marriage. So an in-law, but, um, but, you know, Bob was becoming prophetic. Uh, a lot of people were drawn there. Sean Bowles was in Kansas city for a period of time and, you know, was known to, and among them and had interaction with Paul Kane and Bob Jones and so forth. I had interaction with all these guys because of my work with John. And I got to know a lot of them. I was always very interested in the prophetic myself. And so many of them had a deep influence on me, particularly Bob Jones and, uh, john paul jackson but but later on james and i got to know each other pretty well and there were some others beyond that so um the one thing though the prophets i mean this really blew the lid off of things and you know even the british evangelicals were writing books about their experiences with the prophets and so many of the things they prophesied came to pass. And so many of the things that they told people individually were, were accurate, and, and we might even say scarily accurate. So all of that was going on, but there were a few things that went, that went wrong. The, the prophecies didn't come to pass, they didn't land well. And there were some odd uh, teachings around eschatology that made people uncomfortable. And when I say odd, they weren't in the mainstream of orthodoxy for evangelicals, or for that matter, most Pentecostals. And so eventually, um, it came a little too hot to handle. And so the vineyard and the prophets kind of parted ways. But a lot of people really still wanted that prophetic input, and they wanted to be associating with the prophets. And so in some ways, the prophets... I don't think there was ever an intention to do this, but they created a a type of a rift within the denomination that was emerging. It wasn't yet a denomination, but it was moving that way. And when I say rift, what I really mean is a split, but but it it, it wasn't quite as formal as a split until it got to the point where that prophetic side of the vineyard kind of continued to move forward. And ultimately we get the Toronto outpouring, which Randy Clark is widely credited with uh, starting well randy was associating with a lot of these prophets and friendly with them and we get this dramatic experience in toronto and this really does create a rift within the vineyard movement and so toronto and kansas city are asked to leave the vineyard movement completely they, they are literally pushed out and there still remains to this day i think a, a bit of a i don't know I don't, I don't want to speak for the vineyard. I'm not an official spokesman. But my impression being around a lot of vineyard people through the years uh, and people from Kansas City and Toronto and other places, my impression is that there is still something of a, I don't know, a bit of a distaste in the mouths of many vineyard people from that era who remember all of that time uh, with respect to both the prophets and and with respect to Toronto. And so I'm not sure how that gets resolved, but anyway, that's my, that's my observation, taken for what it's worth. We also have- in,
0: uh, Yeah, just in that, in, in sticking with, with the, the theme of the radical middle, I, I guess the assumption is, is that um, with the IHOP uh, thing that was going on there in Kansas City with the profits, and then with Toronto- was the assumption that they had swung too far over into the Pentecostal lane and, um, and so thus were not threading the needle of that radical middle uh, well enough. Uh, and and that's, that was sort of the reason for the disassociation.
1: Yeah, I think to a very great degree. But you know, if I think about it, and I particularly think about when Toronto was exited um, and Mike with them, um, I think the issues were possibly even more having to do with the praxis, the things that were going on, than they had to do with the theology. My, my impression. I'm not saying the theology was not an issue, but I think the praxis was probably more of an issue. Um, because... There were, you know, people prophesying babies. Sometimes they didn't come or they were told they'd be a boy and they got a girl or the other way around. They were told to get a girl. They got a boy. Um, there were things about coming end time events, and maybe those didn't quite happen the way they were supposed to happen. Um, the some of the which phenomenon- is which is.
0: It's interesting, though, when you talk about prophesying babies, as we've already discussed when we're prophesying your three.
1: It's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, what, where they finally got to was they sort of restricted it. And they said, you don't prophesy mates, dates, and babies. It's not that you cannot. It's that you need to be good enough to do it. And a lot of people were wanting to be prophets. And right. so they were trying to do it. And there was just a mess created by all of the words gone wrong and all the heartbroken people who were, you know, you were, they, I was supposed to be healed. The prophet said I was going to be healed. And now I'm dying. And then the family would say, and now they are dead uh, what's up with that? Where's the accountability for that one? And, you know, the word came that there was going to be a baby male or female and didn't happen. And so there was, there was this kind of blowback when the words went off, they tended to go way off and people didn't like that. And then in Toronto, um, there were some very unusual things. People were barking and, um, they called it, I call it chicken walking, right. They kind of walk around and sort of do like this all the time. And then this thing of resting in the spirit, which that wasn't as controversial. People were at least familiar with that from the uh, renewal of the 1960s. But the problem with, these, with what went on in Toronto, uh, in most people's mind, was sometimes people would be knocked out for hours, and in some cases, days. And they were like, what is this? This can't possibly be God. Well, actually, all of this is recorded in the journals of none other than the evangelicals, Jonathan Edwards. Uh, George Whitfield and even Charles Wesley, excuse me, John Wesley. So it's not that there wasn't ample uh, historical precedent for it. It's that people weren't familiar with it. And you know when people are not comfortable with something and in this case they weren't comfortable with the manifestations, what they were seeing, this didn't seem to be the radical middle because when we were just doing healing, Sometimes people would shake a little bit. That was part of the inheritance of the Quakers. That's why the Quakers were called the Quakers. They started being known as the Society of Friends, but because the coming of the Spirit on people would often result in them shaking or quaking, they became called the Quakers in derision. Well, that would sometimes happen in the healing ministry, but people kind of got beyond that because they'd say, well, that's just Quaker inheritance. You know, spiritual, that's what the Quakers do. But when it started to be such a prominent thing in these other movements, and it had somewhat died down within the wider mainstream vineyard movement, it became quite controversial. And so it was no longer, maybe we could say the middle moved. And so maybe it was more originally vineyard. And therefore, it wasn't really viewed as the radical middle anymore. I don't know. Some would probably take exception to that. So if you're one of the listeners, if you take exception to that characterization, Please forgive me. I'm just trying to help people understand what was going on.
0: No, and this—I mean, you know—in fairness, this is a very nuanced conversation that probably we've had maybe a million times uh, in our in our uh, ministry history uh, with other people in, in the vineyard and all of that. Uh, and so it is—it is kind of a, a sticky one for for a certain group of people. But it's interesting to me, you know, the the comfortability with the things of the spirit. And uh, with all of that, I, I wouldn't necessarily think it would be the middle is moving, but it's always a relative thing of what you become comfortable with, right? That's and right. so, yes. you know, even even thinking back into um, when when your Belinda Vineyard became that instead of Calvary Chapel because of some uncomfortabilities of the praxis that was happening, and uh, and then even thinking about when Lonnie Frisby came in. And the the people that were slamming their Bibles shut and believe um, leaving. So the so really you become comfortable with what you become comfortable with. And uh, and so it's interesting. It's not as much as the needle moving between Pentecostal and Evangelical. It's more of the needle moving between experiential comfortability and what's what where where you draw your own personal line into what it is that you want to be comfortable with or not. Is is it seems to be.
1: Um, well it it, for sure the praxis matters absolutely unquestionably i wouldn't deny that for a minute that's why the vineyard was exited from calvary chapel because they weren't comfortable with the manifestations that were going on in at the oral in the vineyard but um when we think about this uh a bit uh the doctrine also matters and so um i remember just prior to uh Toronto being exited the Toronto what was at that that time the Toronto Vineyard Christian Fellowship uh, or Toronto Airport yeah Toronto Vineyard Christian Fellowship and after they left they became known as the Toronto Airport Christian Fellowship because they met in a building at the end of the runways at the Toronto Airport um, in Toronto Canada uh, there were some issues with the theology that some of the members of the U.S. Vineyard Board didn't like. We don't need to go into all that. It's just bottom line, there were theological differences. And I would say that right up to this day, one of the things that uh, many vineyard leaders are not entirely comfortable with at Bethel is this idea back to the kingdom of God. The vineyard always understood the kingdom to be already and yet not yet, which is to say, there's some part of it that hasn't been, that hasn't occurred yet, hasn't you know hasn't been realized and so we would say when people didn't get healed we were experiencing the not yet of the kingdom on the one hand there's truth in that i think that's i think there's more to say than that it's its own conversation but okay that's kind of where it landed in vineyard circles bethel tended to say kingdom now and with that all of the kingdom is available and we're going after it and so in vineyard circles they said this isn't, and this is the exact verbiage they use. This is over-realized eschatology. Overrealized realized meaning you're expecting too much of it to happen today and leave nothing for the future because you're going to get all of it now. Well, whether Bill Johnson and the other leaders, senior leaders of Bethel would fully agree with that or not, that's that would be an interesting conversation. Maybe I should have asked Bill that when we had him on the show, but it wasn't really on theme for where we were going. So maybe I'll have him back. We'll talk about it sometime. But anyway, um, that's one of the big stick points for many vineyard leaders. They look at what Bethel teaches and at least in their own perception, rightly or wrongly, they think Bethel is overrealized realized in their kingdom theology. And so they're like, we don't want to be there because it leads to outcomes we don't want. It leads to practices we don't like. So no, we're not doing that. And so Bethel and Vineyard, they, I mean, they sort of exist in the same general sphere, but Bethel is always viewed as a little more pushing the envelope than uh, Vineyard is these days. Some of that might come from their Pentecostal heritage, but Bill's no longer an Assembly of God guy. Bethel is its own movement, so I'm not entirely sure that the the overrealized eschatology issue has fully gone away i think for a lot of vineyard leaders they're still thinking about it
0: well i would say from my experience absolutely it's a it's a continuing
1: so they don't view they don't view bethel as the radical middle they view bethel as the radical one side right right yeah right
0: and so that would be that continual quest of where is the middle yeah and what uh what does that look like and again i think that's where it becomes Uh, because it's a quest because it just like you were talking about uh john didn't need to have a lot of closure sometimes he was okay with with uh a bit of mess uh and all of that it seems like from this conversation even the idea of a middle is uh subject to those that are that are viewing where the middle is
1: i think that's right yeah Well, so you know we're on a continual quest I think where we want to leave this today is that um, we want to be soundly biblical. And unfortunately, a lot of the streams that are out there these days are not. And in that sense, I'm very much in the vineyard tradition. uh, And for that matter, the evangelical tradition, I really believe in the word of God. And I think most of these movements would say they believe in the word of God. But when you listen to a lot of the teachings that are floating around out there, the, you can tell they're not centered in the word of God. I mean, one of the most easy ones to name that, that that you know almost embodies this is this very widespread teaching on the courts of heaven. There's no teaching on the courts of heaven in the scriptures. You can't support it at all. There's no idea that there's any courtrooms in heaven anywhere found in the Bible. And one of the things John Wimber used to say all the time is we're going to hew to the main and the plain of scripture. What's main, the mainstream of the scriptural teaching and what's plainly there. So anybody who's even suggesting that there are courtrooms in heaven that we go to, to bring to, to get writs, to, you know, resolve our prayer needs is really grasping at something that, that is not clearly mainly and plainly in scripture. Um, so that's, that's a really good example. There are many other such teachings floating around. I just named that one kind of here in closing. So we absolutely have to remain centered in Scripture. This is core to Protestantism, going right back to the beginning of Protestantism. And I might even add in the Catholic and Orthodox traditions, but probably more in the earlier centuries of the church, because later on, those two streams started to say, well, tradition matters right alongside of Scripture. And maybe in the sense that we want to honor the tradition, but not necessarily that the tradition has equal weight to the Scripture. And so uh, we've got to hold on to the scripture. Um, we had a strong emphasis on worship and worship really helped us engage with God, connect with God. That was very much the, the founding core of the vineyard in your Belinda. And then this thing with the spiritual gifts and the, and the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, we don't want to do anything that's unbiblical, but neither do we want to not have these things going on. So I think we want to be there. There, there's more we could say, but given the content we've covered today, I think those are probably our three big takeaways from this talk.
0: No, I love it. And I think, you know, maybe this is sort of leading into uh, another, another episode where we sort of go into the doctrinal and theological um, components that kind of came along with that uh, and, and sort of talk through through some of those things as well. I think that would be a profitable conversation when hopefully people are finding this interesting. So uh,
1: (laughs) if you like uh, it, if you find it interesting, be sure to like uh, the podcast, share it with your friends, uh, maybe write to us podcast at orbisministries.org so that we have some sense of whether we've scratched the itch that was being expressed when people wrote saying talk about the radical middle.
0: Right. And I'll just say too, is further for that, if you're listening, um, as as someone who has been a pastor in the Vineyard for for many years, uh, I, I can tell you, if you want to to really see what Wimber taught, you want to look at the the theology, um, the teachings, all of that. Ken's stuff is is dead center of of historical uh, Wimber, John Wimber thought, and all of his um, you know teachings are very grounded in that idea of, of radical middle, of evangelical, uh, empowered evangelical, and, uh, and all of that. So I would, I would personally recommend if, if you wanna see what that looks like to, to take a, a gander at uh, Orbis, uh, the Orbis website uh, there,
1: so. Orbisministries.org. And uh, we have an app as well where we have um, a lot of teaching available at no charge. And so uh, anyway, you can take your pick how you want to sample the goods. We also, um, not too far in the future, we've got a few other projects that are preempting this at the moment, but I was given an entire collection of all of John's uh, sermons from, oh, wow. uh, from his what, what we might call his heyday. And uh, there are 13 of them that were never returned to that church's library. People borrowed them and I don't know if they got lost or the dog ate it or whatever, but anyway, so 13 cassettes never came back, but I have everything else. And I recently received permission from Carol Wimber to digitize and upload all of that to our website. So you'll be able to hear the entire corpus of John Wimber's teachings during his best years. uh, And that'll be on our website. It'll probably be late this year before it's done, but we will get it done. And so I'm excited that that's coming soon.
0: That's great. That's great. Well, Ken, thanks so much for taking time to uh, to talk through this with us today. I really, I mean, I I enjoyed it. So I hope uh, I hope everyone else did. And I think it does help paint a picture of uh, where we've been and where we're going.
1: uh, Yeah. In this season, certainly helps us flesh out what we're talking about in a new reformation.
0: Absolutely, absolutely sticking to those those core tenets. So, Ken, thank you so much. I look forward to uh, our next uh, conversation. And thank you all. Uh, for listening and watching with us today on god is not a theory with ken fish we will see you right back here uh, next time god is not a theory is a podcast of orbis ministries For more information about Orbis Ministries, go to orbisministries.org. If you have questions you'd like to have Ken answer on the podcast, please send us an email to podcast at orbisministries.org. Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. It's Julia with Orbis Ministries. I just wanted to let you know that if you'd like to learn more from Ken and connect with others in the Orbis community, You can download the Orbis Ministries app on your Apple or Android phone. On the app, you'll find a free teaching archive, a conference schedule, and an internal messaging community. A link to download the app can be found in your description. Thanks so much. God bless.